All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, the Red Sox are the greatest team in baseball. Exciting, for exciting now. games. What a series. I mean, what a series. Two walk-offs in a row after beating the Yankees in a one-game playoff. Like yeah. This is like 2004-level, you know, breakthrough. So before you all turn off the pod, delete it, and unsubscribe, uh, I apologize in advance for being a New England sports fan. I know we are the most pampered, deplorable, horrible group of people on the planet for the last yeah, 20 you years. You used to be sympathetic, uh, no longer. Yes. So, yeah. But seeing the Red Sox beat the Yankees like that in October is the greatest feeling in all of sports for a New England person. And it, it had a nostalgic feeling of bringing me back to the days when we were lovable-ish losers with bad accents. Well, I can I can kind of turn you into an underdog perspective because as a Mets, Jets, and Knicks fan, mm. um, I've not tasted a championship since 1986 against the Red Sox. Um, but that also means that because hurts. I know that the Mets uh, like are always going to end their season in complete disarray, um, I then turn to rooting for whichever team can beat the Yankees. See, I love that. So I'm always rooting for the Red Sox um, over the Yankees. So that was good. I really appreciate yeah. that. Hey, Ben, speaking of a good time. Oh, yeah. Let's if you it. have not yet listened to 544 Days. I, I, I'm all caught up. Man. I'm, I'm yeah. binging. Yeah. Jason Rezaian's amazing new pod. Listen, you're only hurting yourself if you not heard this show. Uh, so it's about his 544 Days. It's in the title. Yeah. Uh, in the hellish even Evan prison. Evan the hellish Evan prison in Iran. Keep it all in. Um, so it's about his time there, the Obama team's nuclear negotiations with Iran, this massive effort to negotiate Jason's release. Ben was a part of this. He's interviewed in the show. All these senior Biden officials who wouldn't talk to us if we pitched them a yes, hundred yeah, times yeah, today yeah, yeah. are in this show. But what really makes the pod so fun is, and hilarious is you get to meet Jason's mom, you meet his wife, Yegi. They have this gallows humor, even when Jason is like, literally before a, a judge nicknamed the judge of death. So check it out. It's only on Spotify. It's free. Give it a try. You'll so love it. I knew Yegi, so I wasn't surprised that she's emerged as a podcast star. Um, yeah, but, me either. Um, I did not know Jason's mom, right? And just when I thought this podcast couldn't get any better, this like totally extraordinary woman pops up. <laughs> yeah. You know, she like you moved to Istanbul um, and when she was single after Jason's right. father tragically died. But then yeah. my favorite is that like they, they, they coach her to act like a kind of submissive Iranian woman when she goes to the prison and, and tries to plead for some access to Jason or Jason's case. And instead, she just decides to be the biggest hard-ass mom <laughs> in the world. And it's awesome. It's just yeah. so great. Imagine you're just like a mom in Marin yeah. County. Like you go through this massive life change. And you're like, I'm going to move to Tehran 
Iran for a couple of years. I'm going to move to Turkey for a yeah, couple yeah. years. She's yeah. like amazing. Yeah, I, I wanted want, to hang out with that one. I want a podcast yeah. on her. Also, there's a new season of Philip Picardi's podcast, Unholier Than Thou. It's back for season two. This season is all about the little guy, Ben. It's all about the Mets in your life. People getting knocked down, getting back up, navigating re-entry into this whatever reality we're in now, this hybrid hell. Uh, so check out Unholier Than Thou wherever you get your pods. Uh, ben, we got a lot to talk about today. In fact, we were going guestless because we had too many topics. Topic list is too long. We just but, didn't want to yeah, shave we'll, any we'll, off. Uh, we got some good guests in the queue, though. So, yeah, we guess yeah. we do. We do. Uh, we're going to talk about why U.S. Special Forces were in Taiwan on a military training mission. Talk about the Saudi government's uh, latest opulent acquisition, a Premier League soccer team, the Newcastle Bone Saws. Uh, the, you know, the I don't know how it fits on a on a jersey, but yeah, um, currently Newcastle kind of United. Spirit of it, yeah. We'll explain all. Uh, Biden's Syria policy, why it's bad to steal uh, nuclear submarine secrets from the Navy. Mm-hmm. Good idea. Yeah. A breakthrough in the fight against malaria, a $20 million home in Beverly Hills, and what it tells us about Afghanistan, Iraqi election results, Ted Cruz in a far right gathering in Spain, an Ethiopia update, and gift giving in the Trump era. This is a great list. It's a yeah, fun yeah. story. That that last one is a fun one. Uh, let's start with China, Ben, because it's big, serious, it's important. So last week, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that about two dozen members of U.S. Special Operations Unit and a contingent of Marines had been in Taiwan secretly training Taiwanese military forces for about a year. Uh, the timing of this report was not ideal. Part of me thinks that Chinese intel has probably been yeah. on top of this yeah, one. Let's for... just be clear. This was not secret from the Chinese. You know? <laughs> yeah, they were on it. But the context is that the Chinese have been flying lots of threatening military flights near Taiwan. Uh, and then broader, you know, more broadly, the Chinese military is in the midst of this years long military buildup that is incredibly alarming if you are, you know, 100 miles away from the mainland like Taiwan is. So uh, interestingly, though, Ben, China's response to the reports of this U.S. training mission was its relatively muted. The Washington Post described their response as cautious, and I guess that just surprised me a bit. China called on the U.S. to cut off uh, military support for Taiwan, but that reaction as compared to the total freak out about the AUKUS deal providing sub-technology to Australia or this other weird report that a U.S. Uh, nuclear submarine collided with an object in the South China Sea, it was just like didn't really compare. On Saturday, Chinese President Xi Jinping Uh, again vowed to achieve unification with Taiwan. This was in a major speech. He said that, quote, achieving unification through peaceful means is most in line with the overall interests of Chinese people, including Taiwan compatriots. But, quote, those who forget their heritage, betray their country, and seek to break up their country will come to no good end, end quote. So that's intense. Yeah. Uh, President of Taiwan has vowed to resist unification. So, Ben, two questions. Were you surprised that this response was, was relatively muted? And then to bigger picture, if someone is listening and thinking, why on earth would the U.S. ever risk getting involved in a war with China over Taiwan? Like, what would you tell them? What, what's the interest here uh, that leads us to do things like deploy special operations forces to Taiwan or sell them billions of dollars of military hardware? So I guess I wasn't that surprised at the muted response, in part because, as we were kind of chuckling at before, I'm sure the Chinese knew about this training mission and the more aggressive military tactics that they've been engaged in. So they basically fly planes through Taiwanese airspace, kind of act like they have no regard whatsoever for Taiwan sovereignty. That was probably part of the response. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, like, and, and it's like it's kind of messaging that goes back and forth between militaries, you know. Um, and, and look, in terms of why to care, I mean, so first of all, it's like a... a a place with 
almost 25 million people who live there who clearly do not want to be you know, united with China mm -hmm. and, and lose the democracy that they've built. But I think it's also the case that the kind of U.S. presence, commitment, engagement project in the region, in the Asia Pacific, in the entire post-World War II period, has at its core like a handful of democracies that we've been close to and supported. And that's Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, all of whom are very close to China. Um, and, and then obviously some other countries that are further away. And, and I think that the, the basic judgment, you know, I usually don't subscribe to like the, and we've actually taken issue with the kind of credibility police, you know, if like yes. one thing happens in one place, it's going to be the message bad in other places, Iran, a message. Yes. I do think that if China rolled tanks into Taiwan and kind of extinguished a democracy of 25 million people right in the neighborhood of Japan and South Korea at the same time that they're militarizing rocks in the South China Sea and claiming that whole body of water. It is kind of like the moment at which like things are really decisively tipping, not just away from like U.S. influence, but away from kind of democratic politics, uh, away from countries making their own choices rather than having China make them for them. Um, and, and, and so I think Taiwan is this kind of test of like, not only does the U.S. support allies like Japan and South Korea, but just can countries um, resist the kind of gravitational force of China? And it's also the case that thus far, you know, we've seen China essentially swallow up, you know, extinguish Tibetan rights um, inside of, you know, what are their borders. Um, we've seen them after the one country, two systems agreement with Hong Kong, kind of do the same there. Mm -hmm. This would be the most aggressive expansionist and probably militarized action that China takes. And, you know, once you start kind of conquering territory with your military and, and absorbing populations into your country, like the, the stakes are just higher in terms of where will that stop? You know, and mm -hmm. I'm sure the Chinese would say, well, we've always said Taiwan's a part of China, so it'll stop there. But you know, they are building like militarized structures in the South China Sea here. There's there's a risk that Xi Jinping is a is is a more classically strongman expansionist character. You know? Yeah, he is uh, he is troubling. Um, so I'm sure this was a subject uh, at a meeting last week between Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, and his counterpart. They met in Zurich, which is a cool place to meet, just generally. Yeah. <laughs> I think they agreed to schedule a virtual meeting with Biden and Xi Jinping. Did you raise this on a recent show? There's these reports that Xi hasn't left China for like 600 plus days. He just hasn't left the country. Yeah. And it's very weird. You know, he um, uh, he has not met Biden yet, um, which is interesting. Um, and, you know, presumably he'll go to the G20 summit. Um I'm not sure if he'll go to Glasgow, where you know you obviously want China to be more engaged in, in the climate effort. Um, but you, you know, it does speak to kind of an insularity um, mm -hmm. that G has, where you know he's just like he's now the 500-pound gorilla in the room, but he doesn't even need to be in the room. You know, I can he can give strident speeches from China, and everybody has to react to that. I mean, he's starting to play the role of you know a superpower more albeit a very insular superpower. And I think there is a danger that, you know, my experience with Xi Jinping with Obama is in that system, once Xi became the decision maker, like he was the decision maker, you know, like everything had to run through him. And whatever you did with the foreign minister or mm -hmm. the whatever diplomat, 
it was no substitute for direct engagement with Xi Jinping. And I think it is a little worrying that, you know, there just hasn't been a lot of contact at the yeah. leader level. Yeah. And I, that's not Biden's choice per se. Some of it is clearly Xi's. But with, by the end of our first year, you know, we, we had a summit with the Chinese in Beijing and there's this effort to try to disagree on some things and work together on others. And, and that just seems to be absent right now. And that's potentially, you know, dangerous that you don't have uh, the capacity to de-escalate things. Yeah, not good. Get the guy like a, a Frommers or whatever the hell. He wants travel books. You know, <laughs> yeah, get get yeah. a travel bug again, get a backpack, I mean, some hostels. And, and I will say one other thing about Taiwan that's, you know, they, they offered, uh, again, they talk about peaceful reunification. They talk about one country, two systems. Well, How'd that go? Yeah, how'd that go in Hong Kong? That was the promise they made to Hong Kong. That was part of an international agreement with the United Kingdom when the handover of sovereignty of Hong Kong happened in 1997, and they totally violated that. And what happened after they basically swallowed up Hong Kong with those national security laws is the politics in Taiwan shifted away from wanting to even discuss, you know, closer ties with China. Uh, President Tsai, who comes from the, you know, kind of pro-independence party, she was reelected with a much bigger mandate. The politics in Taiwan are moving away from an openness to one country, two systems. So when Xi talks about a peaceful reunification, it's hard to see the path to that. And where does that leave you? Well, if you're not going to have a peaceful reunification, and then what's going to happen? Yeah, it's an invasion. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's a threat. Yeah. It's yeah. totally a threat. Um, uh, let's go from one tyrant to another in the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia. So last week, Saudi Arabia effectively became the owners of Newcastle United, an English Premier League soccer team. Uh, technically, it's the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, or PIC, that purchased 80% of the team. It's their sovereign wealth fund. It controls a cool half a trillion or so dollars. Yeah. That's... Uh, you know, it's not bad. Can, you can uh, get it. Get some stuff done. So this deal went through shortly after the Saudis stopped blocking the broadcast of a Qatari-based sports network in its territory. They had been blocking this network that shows Premier League games and then pirating the feed and then airing it on their own channel. And that commercial deal is clearly what held this this discussion up of this acquisition for several years. Um, when the deal was announced, the Premier League released this absurd statement that said, "Quote." The Premier League has now received legally binding assurances that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia will not control Newcastle United Football Club. In other words, <laughs> the Premier League wants you to believe that the Saudi government doesn't control the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, even though the fund is chaired by Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, yeah, got yeah. it, guys. Thanks, little, guys. A little cognitive dissonance yeah, good, there. good PR meeting you guys had. There. Yeah, really yeah. clever statement. Uh, so the Pod Save the World audience is probably pretty familiar with Mohammed bin Salman's rap sheet by now. In 2018, he ordered the execution of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. This was inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The Saudis are still waging a brutal war in Yemen. They're locking up dissidents. They suppress women. Just horrible stuff. But this purchase is actually part of a broader trend in sports that we wanted to talk about. So in the Premier League, Manchester City was bought by the deputy prime minister of the UAE back in 2008. He's reportedly invested $3.5 billion into the club they are awesome, by the way. They're just a really good team now. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain, or PSG, which is the best team in France, is owned by the Emir of Qatar. The 2022 World Cup will be played in Qatar, even though it's like a billion degrees there. Chelsea, another uh, Premier League team, is owned by this Russian oligarch. Uh, so all of these guys uh, figured out that if they buy a team and it does well, that's what people talk about, right? You're not talking about human rights. You're not talking about you know corruption. You're talking about who won this weekend. And... The other sad part about the Saudi purchase, Ben, is that most Newcastle supporters are cool with it. There was a poll, 
5% of 3,000 Newcastle fans surveyed said they were in favor of the sale, although that probably has to do with the fact that I guess the team just, they hate the current ownership uh, and we're just willing to say yes to anything. Well, deep pockets, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Can win games. So I guess the big question I have for you is, what role do you think the British government could or should have played here to maybe block this? Because even Keir Starmer, who is the leader of the Labour Party, kind of ducked the question of whether the sale should be blocked. And he said, you know, well, really an independent regulator should look at this, blah, 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 kind of wishy-washy. What do you think? Like, what's the role of government here to protect essentially just sort of like a foul bad actor from becoming part of this like treasured institution? When I should add, like from a branding perspective, you're a bigger Premier League guy than I am. But I mean- uh, Recently though, uh, barely. You know, like more people around the world probably see the word Emirates in the Fly Emirates jersey. Dude, I had no idea what Um, Fly Emiratis or Fly Emirates meant for years because I didn't care about soccer. Yeah, yeah. Um, But that's how people think about the UAE. They think about the soccer jersey, right? Look, I, I, I love Brits. I love the United Kingdom. I believe in the special relationship. So I'm contextualizing a criticism I'm about to make mm-hmm. that I would also apply, you know, obviously to the U.S. and have in other cases. There, there's, you know, the U.K., London has always been something of a destination for all manner of wealth, including ill-gotten wealth. You Very know? true. No Very secret true. that like a lot of Russian oligarchs camp out there. They park money there. They have people doing the back office for them there, law firms, PR firms. There's kind of like an industry of of managing ill-gotten wealth or stashing it in London, you know. Um, and by the way, like I said, same thing happens to some extent in New York, but London in particular. Now, South Dakota, too. And, yes, action, South yeah. Dakota, too. And, and look, I think that as you get into a post-Brexit UK, um, the idea that um, that that's one of the comparative, I don't know if advantage is the right word, but it's one of the ways in which the UK connects with the world is that that it, it's a funnel for all this wealth. And and what the it's clear what the Saudis get from this. They get a branding exercise. They get a plaything. International soccer is kind of at the forefront of global pop culture. Yep. And all that's good for them. What do the Brits get from this? At a certain point, the balance of who's getting advantages from this kind of tilt in the favor of the Putins and MBSs of the world. Um, and, and what happens intangibly to kind of small d democratic values if like the iconic cultural institutions of your country are kind of sold to people who murder and cut up journalists in consulates, you know? Um, so I do think, uh, you know, there should be across the board uh, like a greater reckoning in the UK with how much they want to be the kind of destination for this kind of wealth or a part of like the PR campaign in the West for autocrats. Um, I, I, I just think like like that's a regulatory issue, but it's also just a decision that you're making as a country and as a society about like, hey, do we want our iconic and look, we're going to deal with this in the U.S. too. MBS came here. He wants to invest in the movies. And, you know, uh, like I, I just at a certain point, like there's certain conduct that I think should be disqualifying for giving that kind of entry point into 
literally the, the national psyche, which is what you know Premier League is pretty central to. Yeah, and there's reports that Mohammed bin Salman warned Boris Johnson in a text message, which, by the way, don't take text messages from this guy uh, as something we've learned because they pay for spy software. Yeah, Bezos, too. Like, yeah, uh, like, yeah. yeah I think there's a rumor that he got hacked in a text message. Yeah, n- not ideal. But that he might have sent a text to Boris Johnson basically uh, uh, make, asking him to intervene and correct an initial decision not to allow the takeover back earlier. This has been something that's sort of like been in progress for a while. So, yeah, it doesn't seem like... Government at all levels has kind of slowly acquiesced. And, you know, look, we're not blaming Newcastle fans. No, I was listening no. to um, Roger Bennett's pod, Men in Blazers. He was talking about Newcastle. And it's one of those, you know, sort of like kind of like, a you know, Ohio steel town, right? Like post-industrial, yeah. like has had been on hard times. They had this horrible owner come in who promised to make the club better and completely shit the bed. And, and like they just despised him and they wanted him out no matter what. That said, I mean, I don't know. You're right, though. There should be some kind of guardrail. There should be guardrails. And it, it, like the Boris Johnson text exchange is um, an example of what I'm talking about where the, like the leverage shifts and suddenly, you know, over time, there's more and more leverage in the hands of the people with this kind of money that's invested in your country. And then, you know, first you're acquiescing to the purchase of this team, but when does that enter into other issues involving the Saudis where you're acquiescing because they have so much money invested in, in the UK? And you're right. I don't hold it at all against Newcastle fans. I think the thing that people need to consider, though, is we talked uh, a few months ago about that kind of aborted effort to 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 create a super league, super league. you know, yep. that was going to screw soccer teams across you know Europe essentially by essentially having like a a pay in league where you have to have like a certain amount of wealth. Yeah, the best teams. That's where this all leads, you know. <laughs> if if it all becomes about like who can can come with the biggest you know checkbook. Um, you're going to end up with this kind of bifurcated inequality in sports, and yeah. and then you're going to end up with the lowest common denominator, you know, superhero movies and in pop culture. Like, like uh, if you're prioritizing money over everything else, it it, it ends up backfiring on you. you. What you love about sports, you kind of you lose to some extent. You know. Yeah, it is not. Uh... Not good, man. I would not want Mohammed bin Salman to own my team. I'd feel weird about it. You know, I, 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 I don't I, I don't love my sports owners in the U.S., um, but like they're, you know, we're dealing with kind of our set of assholes with like James Dolan and the Knicks and yeah, Woody, Woody Johnson, Johnson and the Jets, you know, Bob like, Kraft kind of and... sucks. But like like the, 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 the guardrails wouldn't exclude them. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're just shitty owners, you just know, started bad politics. Yeah, exactly. Started murder for yeah. guardrails. It's not just an allegation. Like there were investigations, there's a UN rapporteur, like yeah, the, the, he, he the, did it. the murder is clear. Yeah. And so like, that's what you are allowing is that person to kind of launder their reputation through this. Total story. impunity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit 
betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crooked world. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Speaking of uh, murderers laundering their reputations, let's talk about Syria. So uh, Josh Rogan, The Washington Post, had an interesting column about Biden's Syria policy. Here's the backstory. So King Abdullah of Jordan has been leading an effort for some time now to get countries in the Middle East to normalize relations with Syria and the Assad regime. Jordan recently opened its border with Syria. And then October 3rd, Assad and King Abdullah talked on the phone for the first time in, I assume, what, a decade? Something like that. So Abdullah's case for normalization is basically... You've been trying to get rid of this guy for a decade. That effort has failed. Let's focus on engaging him, trying to improve his behavior rather than deposing him. It's an you know, argument that's, uh, you know, it's worth debating. The Jordanians uh, also have reportedly sent uh, gas and electricity to Lebanon through Syria. That's important because Lebanon is in dire financial shape. They recently went a full 24 hours without centrally generated electricity because they're out of fuel. So, you know, they had to sort of uh, avoid U.S. sanctions in doing that, right? So it's sort of a piece of this puzzle. So the question this column raises is basically, how does the Biden team feel about Adullah's efforts? The headline of the Post piece says Biden is tacitly endorsing normalization. I'm not sure that that headline is really backed up by the reporting and the facts in the piece. It sounds like it's more like the Biden team doesn't think they can stop Abdullah from doing what he's doing, or they don't think the effort it would take to pressure him to stop is worth it. So Rogan also names Brett McGurk, who you know well, Ben, uh, top advisor to Biden on Middle East policy, as a proponent of normalization with Syria. He points to a piece that Brett wrote in 2019, arguing that the U.S. should focus on basically two priorities in Syria, preventing ISIS from coming back and preventing Iran from establishing like a permanent military presence in Syria. So Ben, I'm curious what you make of this debate, because I, I read this uh, McGurk article from 2019. I think his argument was basically that like in the immediate wake of Trump's decision to withdraw troops from Syria that the U.S. needs to recognize that we no longer really have all that much leverage there and that these Arab states are going to normalize with Assad no matter what we do. And we can either sort of shape that process and be a part of it or let them just do it in secret and, you know, not have any control. But I, I don't know what your sense of what Biden's position is and really what you think the better of the two options are, like with the caveat that this is one of the hardest decisions I bet they're debating on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the one of the the problems with this the way in which it was framed is like this is new my sense for years has been that that established collection of middle eastern leaders you know all autocratic leaders abdullah 
Mohammed bin Zayed in the UAE, you know, Sisi in Egypt, they've been doing this for a while. <laughs> I, I, like, I don't think it's a new development that they're talking quietly to the Syrians um, and kind of accepting the reality that Assad is still there. Um, and, and so I think th- that's to say, I think this is happening without Biden. You know, I don't think it took a Biden winking at them to do it, you know. Um, in terms of what what are they going to do about it? You know, if you look at their approach to the Middle East generally, it's clearly been that they don't want to try to do anything that ambitious in the Middle East. You know, they've they have very low uh, expectations or ambitions about what they can achieve, and so I would expect that they'll be somewhat hands off about this. Um, I would hope that look at the end of the day, the idea of like dislodging Assad seems you know very unlikely yep. in the near future, right? Brett, uh, Brett points out in his piece that like people are always like sanctions, sanctions, sanctions. Well, yeah. since 2011, Syria has seen the steepest GDP collapse of any country since Germany and Japan at the end of World War II. So it's kind of hard to make a sanctions threat in that context. Yeah, and particularly when they get military support from Russia and from yeah. Iran. And, and so I think that the US should just try to focus on w- w- what can we do to alleviate humanitarian suffering in this right, country. Right, you right. Know, Whereas like, Pompeo and Bolton would say, we're going to stay until all Iranian troops are out or set some like wildly ambitious goal. Uh, yeah, I think it's just like, how can you get aid in across border crossings? Can you can you help improve the lives of people that have suffered enormously in this civil war? Can you deal with neighboring states like Lebanon that have dealt with the spillover of that war? Um, and, and can you, uh, in places that Assad doesn't control, um, which is not that much, but it is kind of Eastern Syria and places where the U S has been active is, can you protect those people from kind of, uh, retribution and violence? I, I wouldn't expect to see the Biden team put a ton of effort into this. And, and I think frankly, that the efforts like Abdullah's are whether the, you know, they, they are morally reprehensible to us. But I mean, these are all autocratic leaders. I mean, they're they're not evaluating mm-hmm. small d democracy no. and what they're doing. And I'm not saying I like that. I'm just saying that's, I think, what's happening. Yeah, I know Abdullah is busy um, keeping an eye on his Malibu base real estate holdings or whatever we're in the Pindor papers. Yeah, and I think a lot of these leaders made a judgment that, like, they would have liked to have seen Assad go at a certain point because he's aligned with Iran and he's a bad actor, but that they didn't want to take positions. Uh, and take risks that suggested that their own rules, you know, um, yeah, are, illegitimate. are illegitimate too. And so forced to choose, you know, they'd rather swallow hard and choose normalizing the autocrat than continuing to support people that oppose autocracy. Because right. if they do that, well, the logic gets a little complicated for them. Yeah, the slippery slope. Um, ben, a Maryland couple has been accused of trying to sell Secret U.S. nuclear sub technology to a foreign country. This was probably a bad this idea. Is cr- crazy fucking this is story a crazy story. Long time. I mean, so this guy Jonathan Toby, he was in the Navy for five years. He's a nuclear engineer. Then he continued working on nuclear propulsion technology as a civilian. He and his wife Diana were arrested after a year-long FBI sting operation that began when Toby and his wife allegedly sent a package containing U.S. Navy documents to some foreign country, along with instructions for how to. Uh, communicate with him on an encrypted basis. Whichever foreign country got this package, and we don't know which it was, did not take the bait. They didn't bite on his offer, and they instead handed it over to U.S. authorities, and then they coordinated with the FBI with this sting operation. That included arranging some sort of signal from the country's embassy in Washington 
to the Tobies that was and like that was supposed to demonstrate that this response was legit. Like so, for something like open the fourth window to the left on the second floor on this day, like old school yeah, yeah, yeah. John Le Carre yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, like good it, stuff. Yeah, it was like the Americans, you know, like go to a park. Like they were literally like I think park benches involved and, and shit like that. Yeah, um, yeah. They, no, they asked for the Tobies asked for a hundred grand in exchange for secrets, and they delivered it via data cards that they hid in a peanut butter sandwich, a band aid wrapper, and a chewing gum package. Yeah, I mean, really, an Americans season. Uh, this whole thing. Um, so first of all. Again, nothing more than kind of amateur tea leaf reading and listening to smart people. Um, Like the French um, seem like a quite a possibility as the the country, right? Because it was clearly a friendly country. Like I don't think Russia or China would have been like uh, signaling with the open window or whatever. Um, And also, I think there was a weird. message that like someday we'll have wine together or something that oh, they, really? these people sent. Um, we don't know that for certain, but if it is the French, that puts the whole AUKUS thing in yeah. a different light too, because if the French were basically helping us rather than stealing our secrets, if they were helping us catch people who were trying to give them secrets. And then we turned around and, and gave those secrets to Australia yeah. um, at the cost of you know tens of billions of dollars that might explain. Uh, yeah. Something if right? they gift wrapped for us uh, yeah. a cl- stolen classified details of a three billion dollar Virginia class nuclear submarine, and then we were just handing that over to the Aussies under their noses, yeah, they could see why they'd be mad. They have denied it, but I don't know. I don't know. They, I mean, maybe it's feel... not them. I mean, but there are not that many countries that could receive this kind of stuff and, but... and act on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to say, uh, is it John and Diane? Right? Um, it was uh, Jonathan, Toby, yeah. and Diana. So I'm trying to picture this couple. You know, like suburban DC, living in Annapolis. Living in Annapolis. She's a teacher, and they're like, you know what would be cool is to become like spies. Yeah, you know? she's like his lookout. Um, yeah, she's a lookout. Like we're suddenly going to live like the couple in the Americans, and our life is going to be much more exciting. There was like a very weirdly human element to this um, that it felt like people just wanted to make their lives more interesting, which is one of the reasons. You know, if you read John Le Carre too, like. That's why some of these people get into it. It does remind you that like, hey, like there are a lot of people who know a lot of sensitive shit. You know, that was my take um, was like, wow, we got real lucky here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what they could have gone to the Chinese with this stuff and the Chinese would not have been opening the window. Um, so. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it points to that vulnerability. Kudos for catching it. It doesn't seem like this was the hardest target to apprehend uh, with no. all, all due respect to the FBI and DOJ. Like they they they, they kind of walked right into the, the sting operation here. Look. The FBI does a lot of important work. Uh, I think we all are pretty well versed in the things they've screwed up. There are a lot of like sting operations that the FBI rolls out where some like 19-year-old kid is is arrested with an yeah. inert bomb who thought yeah. he was joining like Al-Qaeda or something. You're like, uh, are we just catching the dumbest of the dumb? I never know. But this one, we are catching people who at a minimum really did intend to commit pretty serious crimes. Yeah. You know? Highly educated, yeah, 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 yeah. access to top secret stuff. I mean, like the 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 top secret information that you and I read, it would be like, such and such leader believes this about a trade agreement. Like this guy is handing over like schematics to a nuclear sub. That's a that's a big deal. That's real deal espionage. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's interesting. I, I thought back on that. Like you do realize that how much because I, I saw the report that this guy was like basically bit by bit taking pages of documents over out. Years. And he got like thousands of pages, and like. You know, we worked in offices and had printers. Like we'd never occurred to us to do that. You know, I don't but think it does, I knew how to work. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I never used that that high side email that much anyway. The classified email, but like it does, 
it, it again, it's a reminder that, of how much like human buy-in is required to protect the certain things, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. We haven't been great at it lately. We, we, we the U.S. government. Well, and it, as the U.S. government becomes a more and more distrusted institution and as people get more polarized, it may be that there's more and more of this because there's always going to be some president that a part of the workforce, you know, sees as like illegitimate or something. Totally. Uh, ready for a little unadulterated good news? Uh, yeah, oh, please. I know, it's been that kind of <laughs> yeah. week. Okay, last week, the World Health Organization endorsed the world's first malaria vaccine for use in kids. Uh, malaria is a parasitic disease. It's carried by mosquitoes. It kills more than 400,000 people per year. And tragically, well over half of those deaths are African children under the age of five. Uh, there has been a, a huge trial or pilot program to test this drug in Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi. It included over 800,000 kids. The initial findings found that the vaccine reduced severe malaria by 30%. Now, I know that sounds low in comparison to the effectiveness of the COVID vaccines, but at scale and over time, this vaccine could save millions of lives, especially super young kids. Uh, and that is a big deal. It's also, I believe, harder to make uh, a vaccine for a parasite like this than it is for a virus. So hopefully scientists can build on the success develop better vaccines, maybe using mRNA technology uh, and make them more effective to the point where we can eventually eradicate malaria. So this is not going to fully replace, you know, mosquito nets and all the other yeah. treatments that are out there, but great news. Yeah. Uh, like, and, and Obama, I remember in 2016, kind of launched this initiative to try to end malaria. Um, and, and the thinking then was, if you just evaluate like the impact on human beings, like ending malaria or curbing the excesses of it will have more of a positive impact on on life on earth for for the biggest number of people as as just about anything else mm -hmm. you know in the in the disease realm um so we shouldn't understate how transformative this could be it does it like it was always going to require a mix of drugs and vaccine and and mosquito nets and basic steps, you know, disseminating the kinds of things that can prevent people from getting it in the first place. But huge good news and, and, and something that will literally just improve the quality of life uh, dramatically in lots of places. If, if I can find something to critique here, you know, part of what we saw in COVID is that when we in the advanced uh, economic world started to get hit with a disease. Yeah, like, well, white people are dying. Boom, they had a vaccine in like a year, of course. you know? And it does make you think what would happen if there was, look, not everything is going to be, you know, warp speed or whatever they call that thing. But like, it, it does make you think that if you put resources and, and a relentless focus, in the same way, by the way, that after PEPFAR, you got at least an HIV cocktail that could save everybody's life. Mm -hmm. um, these diseases like malaria and dengue fever and other things that, that kind of ravage the developing world, like, I think it's a sign that like we should be doing more to totally. to, to address that. Yeah, like we totally got lucky with with COVID and that there were sort of uh, there was existing ongoing research into some of these coronaviruses. There was the mRNA technology was developing. But you're right. I mean, they, you could probably surge a certain amount of money in a certain amount of places with the yeah. organizations and like really advance the ball a lot faster when it comes to malaria. Yeah, and because and just think about the the improvement in the quality of life in countries that have been ravaged by HIV AIDS after PEPFAR, you know? Um, and, and so this is something where, like, whether it's a wealthy people, philanthropies, governments, um, this is an area to kind of continue raising the ambition. Yes, agreed. 
Uh, ben, so let's talk a little corruption uh, news here. So we've talked a lot about how corruption it was a huge problem in the former Afghan government. Lots of corrupt officials there. It sort of made the people view the government as not legitimate. Here's a good example. The son of the former Afghan minister of defense, his name was Abdul Rahim Wardak. His son bought a $20.9 million mansion in Beverly Hills. 9,000 square feet. <laughs> Shit, man. <laughs> Makes my house suck. <laughs> I could drop it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is on top of his $5.2 million condo in Miami Beach. Uh, Wardock's other son reportedly started a military transportation company in the U.S. Now, this he went to Georgetown. I think he was a valedictorian. I'm not criticizing him as a human, but that well, company- Yeah, we kind of are. Yeah. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That company was reportedly awarded hundreds of millions of dollars worth of government contracts yep. to take care of troops uh, in uh, in Afghanistan at the time. This was back in the day. So again, I want to stipulate that I don't really have any real insight into what the Wardock kids do for a living, how they make their money. Yeah. But boy, does it look bad. Yeah. <laughs> boy, does it look bad. Like a couple months after the- Afghan yeah. government collapse and yeah. this moron buys a $20 million house. What the fuck are you doing, man? Yeah, and that's like 20 minutes from here. You know, I, I um, yes. I mean, what to say about this? Because uh, it is it is kind of like the coda to the whole thing we just went through. Yeah, Because it really it's is. a perfect e- exemplar of the corruption. You know, one of the things I was thinking about recently is that You'll remember at the at the moment when Ghani came to the U.S. and he met with Biden and he said, like, we're going to fight. And he said they're going to put together this kind of collection of they're going to get the band back together of like the the Northern Alliance mm-hmm. militia leaders and warlords yep. and all these people. And Wardock would have fit that yes. bill. Right. Um, you, you know, and these people did. You know, some people have commented that, like, it's weird that the Taliban controls all of Afghanistan now when they never even did yeah. in the late 90s. I think part of what happened is those guys all kind of said they're with the program. We're going to fight the Taliban. What's changed in 20 years is these guys have all gotten phenomenally rich off the corruption of the Afghan war. And treated people locally like shit in many cases. Yeah. And and therefore they had a, an escape valve, right? Whether that's to the Emirates or whether it's to Beverly Hills, like, you know, why stay and fight when I can go buy a $20 million home in yeah. Beverly Hills? You yeah, know? Your cash was in London and you lost the legitimacy of the people in your region. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and to those who rightly point out that this shows like the corruption of Afghanistan's leaders, um, it, it's also on on the United States. Like the, this whole war facilitated this kind of endemic corruption. Yeah. Right? It's, not, um, it's not a coincidence that Wardock's kids started a, a company that got U.S. government contracts. Exactly. Right. And, and, and so there was a lot of corruption priced into this. And, and the aftermath is like ordinary Afghans are screwed and living back on the Taliban. And this guy's, you know, and again, like yeah, it's not his like personal, like he's not the one who invented this system, but it is an example of, of what happened. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, countries we invaded, Ben, uh, on Sunday, Iraq went to the polls for their national election. Your transitions are even better than usual today. I oh, have to say. you're speaking my language. So here's what we know about the results. Uh, turnout was 41%. <laughs> yeah. Not great. Uh, U- U.S. level turnout. Re- yeah. Record low for the post-Saddam yeah. Hussein era. The previous low was 44% in the 2018 elections. That doesn't suggest much faith in government or the electoral process. We know that populist Shia cleric Muqtada al-Sadr's political movement was the big winner. It looks like he will now control 70 seats in the 329-member Iraqi parliament. That's up from 54 seats. Sadr's candidates also appear to have edged out the Fatah alliance, which the AP described as affiliated with an umbrella group of mostly pro-Iran Shia militias. Now comes the government formation process. 
So this election was held a little early in response to protests against government corruption. Those protests, uh, protesters at the time in 2019 and 2020 were met with extreme violence. Hundreds were killed. Uh, Many of those protesters reportedly sat out of this election in further protests. But Ben, I mean, Muqtada al-Sadr is a name that's probably familiar to a lot of people who paid attention to the first Iraq war invasion and, you know, resistance movement there. Can you remind listeners who this guy is and what his political success means to you for the future of Iraq? Yeah, no, this is what jumped out to me because, you know, like in terms of what's going to happen in Iraq, I mean, their politics is just the kind of most bizarre coalition building across different sects and different characters who never go away. And it's it's usually like kind of a like a, a tentative peace essentially between rival factions. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully you get a competent prime minister out of that. Um, but to me, like Maktad al-Sadr, to the world, those who you know, weren't consuming the news in 02 and 03, um, uh, you know, this guy was like the boogeyman, right? Total like boogeyman. he was... So Sadr City is a huge, you know, swath of Baghdad, uh, a more impoverished Shia um, uh, part of Baghdad. And Sadr was an antagonist of the U.S. occupying force in the early days and was kind of like public enemy. You know, like you would think that like there were questions whether we should kill him and, you know, the the neocons are breathing fire about Sadr. Um, and, And since then, he's, you know, gone through multiple iterations. The original um, influence of, of Sadr was that they delivered services in their neighborhood. You know, they were close to the people on the ground and they were seen as he came from a clerical family that had tried to fight poverty and try to stand up for the rights of Shia. Um, but he stood against the U.S. occupation. And I did think there was, look, he's not the Taliban uh, by any stretch. And he's had shifting alliances and he's worked with the U.S. in some things and opposed us in others. But if you had said in 2003 and 2004 that in 2021, the Taliban would control Afghanistan and Muqtada al-Sadr would emerge as the most influential yeah. power broker in Iraq. That'd be bad. Like people would, that would have been like, you know. John Bolton unfa- would have you know, wept. Donald Rumsfeld would have like flexed and, you know, uh, like this This is a, 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 a such a rebuke of the early hyperbole and exceptionalism of the American invasions of both these countries. I, there's just something very interesting about the fact that we're sitting here looking at Sadr as a chief power broker in Iraq and the Taliban controlling Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and I'm not, not saying there's a direct, Sadr's a different kind of, you know, politician than the Taliban. And he obviously exists within a, like a, a, a democracy of sorts in the sense that there's kind of a necessity of coalition building. But, but yeah, like just go back in time and and, and, and dangle that one out there and see what the responses would have been on the Washington Post op-ed page. You know? <laughs> yeah, Fred Hyatt would have yeah, lit himself yeah, on yeah. fire. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. 
Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Uh, Let's talk about our friend. Senator Ted Cruz of Cancun, because he popped onto our radar this week because he took another vacation, uh, this time virtually, to Spain, where he sent a video message to a gathering of the Vox Party in Spain. Now, in the U.S., Vox is a bunch of yeah. Ezra Klein did not found the Vox Party in Spain. Nerds who run a great website, (laughs) host great podcasts. We love Vox in America. In Spain, Vox is a political party that's very similar to the alt-right and has become one of the fastest growing political parties in Spain. So their slogan for a bit was make Spain great again. Very original. Uh, It was a bit of trolling, I think, for attention and it worked. But Vox is a little more Trump adjacent than really Trump emulating because their nationalism is in part a reaction to Spain's Basque separatist movement. Some of these far right policies that they uh, that they you know believe in are a reaction to the financial crisis or a reaction to the rise of far left parties or you know just sort of religiosity they're anti lgbt rights they're anti immigrant they're islamophobic they're very good uh, vox is at using social media to uh, attack the media and political correctness and get attention and build support all this probably sounds familiar what's most interesting to me ben is this the growing coordination between these far-right yeah, European yeah. parties, the far-right in the U.S. Uh, there was a great piece I read Ann Applebaum wrote in the Washington Post. It was in 2019. She talked about Vox and the rise of Vox and how back in the day, these far-right parties were all kind of siloed. Like one was like the Spain in, yeah. in Spain, it was like sort of Franco um, descendants. In Italy, it was sort of like they looked to Mussolini. Now they found common cause around issues like opposing immigration, opposing gay rights. Uh, and, you know, no surprise, they've been welcomed at places like CPAC in the U.S. That brings us back to Ted Cruz in this video. So the concern here I had, Ben, was like these disparate far right movements, they're they're getting together. They're working together. Yeah. They're both they're all getting propped up by these kind of like Breitbart like social media sites and kind of fake news sites that, you know, you're seeing a version of them in, in um uh, they were pro Bolsonaro. Yeah. Uh, there, then there's a very similar website that's popping up in Spain, right? So it seems like it's a piece of this bigger puzzle. And like, I don't know that it's totally been unraveled the way they're working together, the way like Marine Le Pen may be supporting out the the far right in Spain or in Italy. And there certainly isn't a leftist equivalent happening that I've seen, even though that that's what you know these far right people accuse George Soros of every day. It's not very effective. 
so far, whatever coordination might be happening on the left. So I was wondering what you made of, of the rise of Vox, of Ted Cruz sending this message and sort of what it says about, I don't know, what's happening among these parties in Europe and anywhere else. Well, look, I, I, I mean, literally wrote a book about this, right? And, um, uh, and I should add uh, to Dutch uh, worldos out there, after the fall, published in Dutch this week. Nice. Uh, who, t- so- who does the translating for you? Not me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do they do an audiobook? Uh, I don't know if they do an audiobook. You get you get basically a local publisher, right? I've got a great Dutch publisher. Uh, shout out to them. Um, but actually, what's interesting to me about because you know I really dig into Orban and the interconnection with the, mm-hmm. the U.S. far right, and and we've seen that since my book was published with Tucker Carlson and CPAC and stuff. But you know, when I was traveling around Europe and working on this book, what I kept running into was the degree of coordination. So I was in Spain. Um, in um, 20, early 2019, when Vox was getting some momentum, Steve Bannon was had just been there, right? Steve Bannon had gone over and he, you know, kind of lent his racist blogger credentials to Vox, um, and 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 done the same thing in Italy with. He uh, opened that monastery, like institute for a yeah, little bit. Yeah, Salvini in Italy, and and and, and you know the National Front in France, uh, the AFD in Germany, uh, Orbán's Fidesz party in Hungary. Don't forget Poland. I the like law, Bush ju- right yeah, now. <laughs> the Law and Justice Party in Poland, you know, Gert Wilders in the oh, Netherlands, yeah. right? Um, and and all these parties, you know, have a common uh, nationalist ideology, anti-immigrant ideology. But what they also have is, as we've talked about on the show, like they have common and financing sometimes from Russia. Um, like Russia's put some money into these places, and and literally, this is not like you know guessing. The National Front in France has received <laughs> uh, financial support from Russia over the years. Um, but the, what the U.S. far right has done is kind of lent its own you know media expertise, which yeah, is real, best practices, right? Yeah. Best practices and narratives and anti-immigrant politics, and kind of the veneer of look, Ted Cruz is a fucking asshole. Um, but he was like the number two guy in the Republican. He uh, won the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and so him like saying, you know, and by the way, the Republicans, everybody in Europe thinks like could win again. Yeah. A, a, you know, for him to, to kind of bless um, a, a far right movement like Vox, you know, is a sign that the Republican Party is a radical far right party. Um, and so, yes, part of the problem is there's total coordination. There's common sources of financing. There's common media strategies. There's common methods of of intimidation and surveillance. And whether it's we've talked about Black Cube on the show spying on people or the NSO and surveillance of activists, they're sharing a toolkit and they're sharing narratives. And social media allows the same narratives to travel very fast. So what it could be a Breitbart line of argument on immigration in the U.S. can be you know portable to to places like Spain. That's a, that, that's a problem. They're far more coordinated than we are on the left. I would like to see, in addition to the interconnectivity of kind of civil society, which is part of what Soros has tried to do, you know, I'd like to see more Democrats, um, particularly young ones like who have big international followings like like AOC and others, should, should be talking to center left and green parties in Europe. Like we should be building, and some of that happens, and I've been a part of some of that, but like there needs to be the same kind of understanding that we tend to think of what happens in the politics of other countries is a foreign policy issue. It's not what the Republicans figured out is it's a political issue. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a shared identity politics, totally. right? And and we should see the political success of center left and green parties and progressive parties in Europe as a part of our political project globally. It's not a foreign policy thing alone. And don't leave it to just foreign policy nerds to do it. I want to see the people in this country who are working on redistricting reform, working with people who are doing that in Europe, because guess what? They have the same fucking problems. People work 
working on political corruption and finance in this country, working with uh, their Europeans in solidarity across the board. Um, there should be that degree of coordination. And again, part of the problem is it's gotten siloed as someone who's been a part of these kind of transatlantic dialogues, it gets siloed as kind of a foreign policy discussion where the people who really need to be talking to each other are like grassroots movement type folks. Mm -hmm. Like, like to, to use a crooked metaphor, please like vote save America coordinating is probably more useful than like, you know, totally. pod save the world, you know, like, it, like yeah. it's, it's, it's how do you do activism? Right. Yep. And I should say part of the reason why we have activists on this podcast in my view is we're platforming hey what are they doing totally. and can we learn from it can can someone hear like something cool that someone's doing in hungary and repurpose that strategy in the us or somewhere else we need to create that same kind of community of, of people that have access to best practices and good ideas and, and shared strategies yeah man and success begets success right so yeah. like the, the vox there's they wouldn't make their slogan make spain great again unless like right-wing politics felt ascendant because of the success of Trump. That's right. And when when one of these far-right parties like does well, it's like somehow like good for the Republicans. Like we should feel the same way. Like totally. we as American Democrats should feel like it's good for us when a, a social Democrat- did well. Or green, and, yeah, yeah, the Germany. Greens. Like that's good for my totally. politics, you know? And also like I just, the number of times I've sort of had conversations with elected officials or like big donors and have had to explain- the media landscape in the U.S. and how unbelievably tilted it is on the right, not just with Fox News, but with Breitbart and the Federalist and all these like right wing websites that are not real media institutions. They're not businesses. They're not trying to like turn a profit like the Daily Wire. They are political weapons wielded by the Republican Party and like billionaires who use them in service of like getting rid of regulations or a tax cut. And we need to be doing the same shit. We can't dump like just $30 million worth of TV ads into the last week in Miami. Republicans are buying the radio station Miami for 250 grand and they're doing it a couple years out and yeah. they're converting all the programming to this right wing, like pro-Trump talk. Yeah. And we are just getting our clocks clean by Sinclair News yeah. and, and cable news. I mean, like even MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, we're, the rumor is that she is going to be replaced by George W. Bush's former communications director. Now, I'm not throwing any shade at Nicole Wallace here. Like uh, she does a good job, time. but like Rachel Maddow is like the leading lefty primetime MSNBC person. Yeah. Well, you couldn't be more right. I mean, and again, like read after the fall if you haven't. Um, because I described like what, what Orban did is he bought the local newspapers. He bought the, lo not himself, but his cronies, the local radio stations, they dominate the information space. And then the far right in this country has perfected the use of Facebook and social media in ways that that's what Steve Bannon can, when people would say like, well, what use is Steve Bannon's political advice? Well, actually like, he may be a fucking asshole, but like, you know, he does understand juicing algorithms and spreading narratives. Um, and, and so what they, they can do is is communicate to them, hey, here's how you use social media, how you use Facebook to get your message out. Uh, and and like like to, to return to the beginning of this conversation, like it's on a small scale. Right. But I'd like to think that Vox and Crooked Media are useful homes for a different kind of media. Like the Vox that is needed Vox in media. Europe, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The Vox that is needed in Europe is fucking Vox, well, not so, like these racist, uh, you know, uh, Ted Cruz wannabes. You yeah, know? listen, Vox Media is fantastic. They do like super thoughtful, analytical, smart, well reported, 
uh, they they do journalism full time. But we you need do, more than that. You we need, do hybrid yeah. journalism and activism. Yeah, and you, you they know, need all that. In your and, and we know yeah. it's coming from the left, right? And it's just like the landscape on the left is like crooked media, where we're hawking underwear, uh, you know, during commercial breaks to try to fund this little operation. Well, we get the New Yorker and the Times, you know. Yeah, then we get some, yeah. right, right, we got the Financial Times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, and then on the right, it's like billionaires cut giant checks, and they're like, okay, Charlie Kirk, okay, yeah. Ben Shapiro, go, you know, like spread your propaganda with young college kids and it's highly effective and it's not sophisticated yeah. strategies. Steve yeah. Bannon says it. He yeah. says, we just throw shit at the wall. You just cloud everything up. Yeah. Well, and here it's a story about MS-13 committing some gruesome crime. There it's a story of refugees. It's the same narrative, right? And half the time and, is made up and they don't care. And you couldn't be more right about this. Of like, if I could say, people always say like, what's one thing that could happen that could be important? Like beyond social media regulation, I, which I think is most important. Um, what they get which I don't understand, Tommy. Like, I really don't have asked you this, but like, Orban has some guys who are like, hey, for a few billion dollars, we can buy the whole media of this country and and basically turn people into like right-wing foot soldiers. Like, I don't understand why progressives who care about democracy don't just buy the fucking media. And in, 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 I'm not just talking about here, I'm talking about like all around the world, you know, in these places where democracy is under threat, what is really needed is investment in, and, and I talk about Vox and Cricket Media, but it's also newspapers and television yeah. stations. And they, by the way, I wouldn't want our narrative, I wouldn't want our media outlets to be mindless propaganda, but I do think just, you know, giving people alternative fact-based uh, news in, in and of itself is a value in pushing back against far-right politics. So this is hugely important. It's so important. Yeah, I mean, look, the, one of the Nobel Prizes just was awarded to this woman, Maria Ressa, who has this independent media Another good transition. organization, The Rappler. I, yeah. didn't even, I, I wasn't even going to put this on the list today because we, I think we we're going to try to talk to her sometime next week or the week after. But, you know, she is like this last vestige of independent media in the Philippines. And all around her in the Philippines, the right-wing forces are, are buying up the other properties. And that's happening everywhere. And there, there's just no, like you said, there's no analogous situation happening in countries where, like, say, in Mexico, a bunch of, like, center-left or leftist billionaires, individuals are buying up media properties or launching media properties to get that point of view out there. We're not talking about, like, censorship or locking out conservative voices. We're just balancing out the ledger. No, yeah, this is what I get. What about us? And sometimes when I'm out talking about my book about, like, what about Cuba and Venezuela? And I'm like, look, I don't like autocracy anywhere. The left is not the what, like left wing autocracy is not what's buying up the media no. and controlling the information space around the world. Maria Ressa, she's so important if you haven't followed her case in the Philippines because Duterte is an incredibly intimidating guy. He's politically popular there. Yeah, they've cornered the media. There's extrajudicial killings. There's intimidation of journalists. Yeah, and they've been hounding her, um, uh, you know, on trumped up bullshit charges. And the fact that she, this this woman, stood up to Duterte and refused to compromise her journalism was like the lifeline for other people in the Philippines. I've talked to people in civil society there who just like, she stands for all of them. And she stands for the power of truth and the power of accountability and the power of journalism and just also the power of like standing up to a bully, yeah. you know? It's also the power of how Facebook can can really screw up the media landscape. Totally weaponized in places yeah. like Philippines totally weaponized. We could rant about this for hours. It's yeah, it is could. so fascinating. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Let's so we got two more things. So let's talk about Ethiopia um, because unfortunately we have some bad news about the civil war in Ethiopia. So just remember, we've talked about this a bunch of times. The Ethiopian government has been waging a war against the northern Tigray province. It's much smaller, but there is a faction in there called the Tigray People's Liberation Front or TPLF. 
that is a bunch of people who used to be in charge of Ethiopia. They're enemies of the current prime minister. So they've been fighting for about a year. That fighting has included, you know, the Ethiopian military attacking Tigray and the Eritrean military also joining in. And then they've been cutting off aid to the region. So just starving people to death. Uh, there had been sort of like a partial ceasefire or at least a stalemate for a bit. But yesterday, a TPLF spokesman said that the Ethiopian government has launched a major ground offensive into Tigray again. Uh, a friend of the pod, Nima al-Bagir, reported that Ethiopia's government has been using its commercial airline to shuttle weapons to and from Eritrea, which is very, very illegal, a violation of international law. The Biden administration said they're prepared to impose some sanctions on Ethiopia. So, you know, again, more great reporting here by Nima at CNN. Shout out to her. But Ben, again, like my question is like, like this reporting is happening in real time, right? Like major ground offensive, shuttling weapons on like, you know, commercial airlines. I'm still not seeing uh, international community come together to pressure Ethiopia to stop the fighting despite credible accusations of war crimes and even genocide. I realize that the Security Council at the UN is fucking useless because the Russians and Chinese will block everything. But I, I don't know. It's it's like it, it's it's very hard to watch knowing. This yeah, it's like a slow motion catastrophe. And, and I think, first of all, that that's a major air carrier in Africa. Like it's major. It's, air it's like how you get around Africa. Right. Um, and, and, and yeah, they're doing that. Like, you know, sanctions like have a, a like are hugely overused but they do have a place and yeah. and shuttling uh you know weapons on on a major commercial air carrier is kind of the definition of sanctionable behavior um i do think i mean one of the other things you don't see is you know more african leaders on this right like uh, like the i'd lo- one place for the biden team to focus and, and i'm sure they're doing this to some extent but it's like Try, you know, it's not in, in the interest of that part of Africa to have this this kind of war that could spread out. No. So, like, you know, the Security Council, you hit roadblocks. Like, you have to find groupings of countries that care about this and don't want to see it escalate. And that has to include African countries as well as Europe and the U.S. and others. Um, because this isn't this just keeps getting worse. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about this with Nima. Like, you have refugee flows out of Ethiopia into Sudan a country that has had enormous challenges over the past oh decade. Oh, my God, yeah. You still have these unbelievably, like, kind and decent Sudanese families inviting refugees into their homes. Like, you like, can only imagine that. Uh, it, yeah. It's just staggering. Uh, okay, so, again, uh, the, the call goes out to anyone listening in a position to say something, do something about this. Do you, like, tweet us whatever you're working on, whatever statement's gone out. We want to highlight them because it's important. Um, okay, weird, dumb story to close out the show, Ben. We have talked before about these sometimes ridiculous gift exchanges that be- happen between heads of state or you know government officials, heads of state. You have a, a lovely story about the uh, the Saudis trying to buy you and everybody else on the Obama delegation off with was it jewels, watches, suitcases full of jewels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Favre and I, Favre, like like I when I got to Saudi Arabia, there was a suitcase in 2009 with Obama. There was a suitcase full of like jewels like waiting for me, and I thought for a second they were like trying to get influence with me because I was writing like the Cairo speech or something. But then Favreau had the exact same suitcase full of jewels. Um, well, they might have been. Stay tuned. So for the rest of the story. So like when it comes to the leader to leader gifts, in my opinion, way too much thought and time and work gets put yeah. into this. 
when it's great, it's great. I was reading this fun uh, NPR story from 2011 about gift giving. And they talked about how in the Clinton administration, the chief of protocol figured out that Nelson Mandela was a huge boxing fan. And so Clinton got all like the major living boxers in the US to send memorabilia and letters to him. They wrote like personalized notes, put it in a book and they gave it to him. And he was so moved by it that he cried, right? Like amazing story. It's a win. I, right, it was a total win. protocol win. I'm yeah, sure it yeah. made like the meetings better. Yeah. Uh, uh, the flip side of that is when Obama got roasted for giving then British Prime Minister Gordon Brown DVDs yeah. on his visit. We gave the Queen an iPod. Yeah. Uh, was, that didn't go too well. It's funny that that's what passed for like um, cutting edge, you know, in 2009, like DVDs in an iPod. <laughs> Which, know, like, apparently the DVDs didn't work on like the British players either. It just, yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, so shitty. We weren't quite as hip as we thought we were. I guess. It, you know, Obama was like, oh, here I am thinking that uh, Gordon and I are supposed to be working on saving the global economy. Yeah. But I guess, uh, you know, I have to give him some DVDs, hopefully like the notebook or something. Anyway, so here's where this story gets new and fun. Uh, the New York Times had a big report on this. So Ben, you will not be surprised to learn that the gift giving or maybe gift receiving took a corrupt turn during the Trump years. We've talked before about how a $5,800 bottle of whiskey was given to Mike Pompeo. It went missing. Hmm, wonder what happened. The Times also reported that the State Department Inspector General is investigating whether Trump's staff took gift bags that were supposed to be given to leaders at the G7 summit in 2020. They ended up getting canceled because of COVID, whether the staff just took them. Gift bags meant for foreign leaders full of thousands of dollars worth of swag. Uh, they also reported that Jared Kushner, or uh, Rasputin in a skinny tie or whatever his name was, paid $47,920 for two swords and a dagger that was, <laughs> was given by the Saudis. Yeah, not trying to compensate for anything there. <laughs> that's, the way this, that's the way this works. So if you're given anything worth more than $415, Rasputin in a slim fit suit, you have no. to pay for it. So I don't know, but what do you want to bet that the the list of gifts that just kind of happened to walk off from the protocol yeah, this office is, is a little longer? Than this is report. my question. I mean, so first of all, so people know like with the suitcases, like what you do is you say, well, what do we do? This is, you know, and they said, oh, you just give that to state protocol. You'll never see him again. Yeah, they're used to it. And you give them the option of buying them. And unlike Jared Kushner, we don't like have the money to do that. Um, but it makes you wonder, like, how many of these gifts just kind of walked off with Trump officials um, in those years? You know, uh, what kind of accounting was done? Because it felt like from the story, there was kind of a breakdown in the the, Big time. the routinization of because like by the end, what people understand is like, we don't even have the gifts like the gifts are given like they show Obama the gift and then they hand it to the State Department protocol person like Obama never has the actual gift, you know, and it feels like that evolved in the Trump mm -hmm. years into something else. And like, you know, there's not just the, the Trump visits, there's visits by other officials. And, you know, it's pretty clear why you don't want the corruption of that, you know, infecting decision making. Yeah. Uh, in the lead of this story is that the Saudis gave Trump some robes that they thought might have been endangered made of endangered species. species. Yeah. yeah, tiger. And it turned out to be a fraud. It yeah. turned out to be fake. Yeah. And like Bruce Rydell's in the story, he actually was, he worked did some work for Obama on like Afghanistan. Bruce Rydell's in the story mocking the Saudis for giving fake fur. I was kind of like, thank God. Like, well, I, don't yeah, want, rather, I don't want them skinning a tiger. I, I'd rather some tiger didn't die for Donald Trump to have a rug or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it um, is amazing. Only Jared would drop 50 grand on a fucking sword and a dagger. Although, look, let's be honest. 
some gifts might have walked away, but the real kickback is happening right yeah, now. Yeah, it's in the back end. As it's we always speak. said, it's on the it, it's on the investment fund you set up with a lot of Emirati money. Or something. Yeah, and and that investment fund uh, went from you know dialed in guy uh, to a former president that we got to take care of to yeah. you know dialed in guy for the guy who's about to run again. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely the case. Um, it's good every now and then to get these reminders of of both the absurdity and gravity of the corruption of the the Trump years. You know. Um, it's just amazing. So I have one other thing. Tell I just, me. I got this email this morning. Um, I got this buddy in Australia, this guy named Dan Eilick. Um, uh, and forgive me, Dan, if I, if I just butchered your last name. But um, Dan's a hilarious guy, and he hosts a podcast there called Rational Fear. What do we got? So he reached out to me after one of our Australia segments. Oh, no. He's the guy that put the plaque near the McDonald's where Scott Morrison, the prime minister, was alleged to have, you know, Shat himself. Shat his pants, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so he said the latest thing that, that, that a bunch of Australians have done, and I think there's overlapping circles with Australian worldos, is they started like this kind of crowdfunded effort to just take out billboards in like places like Times Square, just like whacking Scott Morrison for his climate record. Oh, I like that. Um, ahead of Glasgow. Um, and, and, you know, just internationally pressuring the guy. So it's a, it, like the, this has evolved from the plaque at the McDonald's to like a billboard in Times Square. Wait, so it's a good through line. You wait, know? so what's your buddy's name again? Dan Eilick. Okay, yeah. Dan, we're doing this in real time. We're building the coalition <laughs> yeah, yeah. of left-wing democratic yeah, this forces. This is a very potsy the world view of the world. I, I, I would I like be it. thrilled yeah. to work with him to <laughs> yeah, talk yeah. with Scott, Scott Morrison, Morrison. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or Murdoch. Yeah. Or I don't any any British listeners wanna wanna have some fun with Boris Johnson? I I, I keep seeing his build back beaver videos, like these <laughs> weird like things. Like fish and he's doing. chips and stuff. And yeah. 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 Build yeah. back batter. That's yeah, the yeah. thing he keeps doing. That's my very bad impression I don't, of Boris I, Johnson. I, I, look, look, uh Donald Trump is a uniquely American catastrophe. Like Boris Johnson, I, I just don't understand like the appeal. Um, I get the I mean, appeal. I get, I get I, what, no, yeah, I shouldn't say that. I it's, understand it. It's I, an act. I, I understand it. It's an act. But like when I see this guy like shoving a sandwich in his face and saying, build back better, I'm like, God, this is the country that gave us like Shakespeare. And, you know, um, and I'll say on the Queen, it's a protocol thing. I, I meant to, um, the one good thing we did do is that she's a big movie buff, apparently. Huh. And so when we had a dinner for her at the U.S. Uh, ambassador's residence, we had Tom Hanks. At, oh. at her table. She loved that. She was down yeah, with Hanks. Yeah, yeah she was down I mean, with Hanks. The guy got COVID. He shook it off in like 30 seconds. I mean, Hanks is, you know, it could be the solution to our, our presidential politics here. Did, yeah. Do you know if the queen likes like contemporary movies? Everything. And uh, she's a huge Broadway fan too. Huh. I guess she's got shit else Show to do. Show tunes and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> sitting around the castle. <laughs> well, yeah. If you're like trapped, movies. you're basically like a prisoner of the state <laughs> with an uh, unlimited bank account. Like you just watch whatever movies you want. You know? That's great. Yeah. I'd love to watch a movie with the queen. She should do like a Twitch stream where she just watches flicks and people hang out and with her. And God save the queen. Like, a, a, you know. Um, she just uh, quietly um, sips tea for like. Yeah. It's a minute. It makes you wonder whether she watches like the the crown and, and like that movie, uh, that movie, the queen. That was a good movie. The, um, uh, H- Helen Mirren, what? star turn, Oscar turn. So the government area is Whitehall, right, in the UK. What's it called? Like, where do the people who work for the Queen, what's that? The Buckingham Palace. So there's like the palace to, staff. The palace at Buckingham Palace. I wonder yeah. if we got any listeners in the palace. Let us know. Prince Harry. <laughs> well, we I, more likely in, in, in the Santa Barbara camp. In the Santa uh, Barbara Palace. Camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Harry, come on the <laughs> yeah, show, man. We'll yeah, talk about whatever you want. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't do need to ask. I don't want to revisit shit. the family stuff. I could care less. Talk about Netflix. You know, let's talk about yeah. Let's talk yeah. about your Netflix. Let's talk about what you did in Afghanistan. 
Yeah. Let's talk about how cool yeah, that, that video is when he's doing the interview and he's like rips off the lob and sprints towards the helicopter. I'd actually be super interested what he thinks about Afghanistan. It's probably not something he wants to talk about, but like he it's was pretty hard yeah. for him. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the Brits, I bet, are especially pissed at the ending and the lack of consultation. Yeah. Yeah. Although I have to Given say- Given they're fighting in Helmand. Yeah. In yeah. Places. But they, you know, they, 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 they largely got out a while ago, you know. That's true. They had some people there. That's very true. You got anything else? That's it. I mean, that was my, I was just like, uh, that, like that, you're right. That does kind of connect to uh, the, the global anti I love that. Have you watched Squid Game yet? No, I got to. I got to. Okay. I need a show too. Because I, I just finished Ted Lasso. And, um, so it's the opposite yeah. of that. It's Parasite and, and meets by the, way, the Hunger Games. That's the opposite of Newcastle United. You know, you got yeah. like. Um, that's true. Yeah. Well, we shouldn't know spoilers, I guess. We can't talk about Yeah, we happens. shouldn't talk about it. But the, uh, yeah, like I, it seemed like Hunger Games E. You know, you uh, will love it. Okay, it's so good. It's about South Korean TV in general is really good. Yeah, it's about inequality and capitalism, and I think sort of like the lack of humanity and the structures and processes and the influence of sort of bad Western white forces. It's great. It's, it's a great super show. interesting. Which countries just kind of take off pop culturally? Like South Korea's there's like between. K-pop? K-pop and, and movies and, and TV. Like there's just, it's a very dynamic, like something's going on up there. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, you look at like the biggest movies in China, for example, one of the biggest markets in the world. And, and their big movies are still like, uh, you know, uh, Wolf Warrior, where I, I think the plot is basically the Chinese military kills a bunch of evil Americans doing something terrible in Africa or something yeah. like that. It's very like nationalist. It's very... You know what the um, weirdest thing was? Do you remember when like e. like Matt Damon popped up in one of these crappy Chinese movies, like The Great Wall or something? Yeah, yeah, it was like yeah, and, and it was like the same idea. It was, but it was just like starring Matt Damon. It was like really yeah, um, that, that should have. And I've, I, I've heard him talk about it. Like he acknowledges it was kind of a crappy movie, uh, but the director was apparently someone he admired. But uh, someone should have yeah. flagged that in the yeah, notes meetings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know these these processes take a while. <laughs> Seriously. Anyway, well, that's all I got, man. Uh, some American billionaire first do the progressive infrastructure stuff, then buy Newcastle. Yeah, throw a bone. I mean, yeah, Get out of Tottenham. I'm a Spurs guy. Uh, yeah, ever until I die, that's, man. That's uh, David Lammy's team. So, oh, I, really? He's I, a Tottenham I, guy. I rep, I rep Lammy's team. Yeah. I would kill to go to the UK and go to a Premier League game with Lammy. Lammy would be fun as hell. Although yeah. I wouldn't know what he was saying the whole time. It's <laughs> yeah. All like I never understand the cheers and the songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just so fun. Yeah. Well, there's not that weird Joe Biden. Brandon cheer. That's, yeah. yeah, that's more of an SEC thing. Yeah, SEC NASCAR, it's not. Really <laughs> it's good. not good. It's not really my milieu. Yeah, well, yeah. the civility police are coming for that one, hopefully. Red so head. We'll see. Red, Red head. head. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, we're done. Okay, we're done. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, rate and review, five star. Five Help stars. Help find the show. Tell your friends about it. Uh, if you are in a... Uh, if you're taking like a foreign policy class in school look at the back catalog yeah it'll help you cheat on a lot of things we go deep on Korea come yeah. on if you're Dutch buy my book and if yeah. you're American buy it too if you're American buy the book in Dutch yeah, yeah. <laughs> try to learn Dutch okay that's it bye bye Pod Save the World is a crooked media production the executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. People think. 
think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Angela. Take a small vacation, get 